0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, September 13th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Guys, uh, the September 11th commemoration has come and gone. And uh, I think it's fair to say that... uh, Even 10 years ago, we would not have predicted the um, somberness of the occasion. And it's a somberness not about the commemoration of the horrors of that day, which should always be somber, but about the condition of the United States 20 years after 9-11, because it's a moment of reflection in which a lot of people... uh, on all sides of the aisle are looking at the country and saying that something has gone deeply wrong uh in the last two decades since 911 and the question is was 911 the triggering event of all of that or um was the or or are other things that are not really related to it <clears throat> you know can uh, the 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 consequence and I, I, I genuinely don't, don't know. We are clearly uh, a country in a state of some kind of emotional crisis. And uh, we were not a country in a state of emotional crisis on September 10th. And we were a country attacked and unified to some extent um, in the wake of that attack about how our way of life had been assaulted, that it was under threat, and that we had something to fight for and live for and work for and support and i don't even know that that's true anymore as a common experience we have people on the right who are saying that uh liberalism <clears throat> in the broadest context and the you know enlightenment liberalism from which this country sprang uh was a is a poisoned chalice or a poisoned fruit And we have people on the left saying that the entire American experiment was born in evil uh, and simply the purpose uh, of America was the, was the trading of slaves and the profiting off human misery. And uh, these are the vanguard opinions on both sides. They are not held by majorities, but they are, uh, they are drenching the mainstream. And um, I just, think back to where uh, things felt on September 13th, 2001, and I don't think that I would have thought that we were
1: going to be here. I think I I agree with you entirely. I'm reminded of something, I've I've been reminded of this a lot sort of in the past year, something that Walter Russell Mead wrote years ago, five years ago, and he said, I think he said the sort of the two biggest challenges facing the U.S. right now are the lack of agreement about what constitutes the good in the country and the related lack of agreement about America's role, uh, what 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 we are supposed to be. And um, the thing about <clears throat> the immediate aftermath of 9-11 was that there was very little doubt about what the good was. Uh, especially in the aftermath, because we saw a lot of it, not to be you know, mushy about it, but in the first responders and the country coming together and all that. Um, and uh, we knew that what, whatever was going to follow, we knew that the US stood for the very opposite of those who had attacked us. And that was uh, at least in that, that was broadly unifying.
2: I just wonder if that's really if those intellectual currents that you're talking about john are really all that new or we're merely just privy to them more uh, there's always been a profound debate over what america's role should be in the world whether it should be introverted or uh, an extroverted proponent of ideological goals or merely a just a, a realist conception of what a you know a, a self-interested state should be I and mean, in those debates were profound and have always been profound and, and pronounced. And um, you know, critics of classical liberalism were, you know, perhaps a slightly more muted in the in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union. But there, those intellectual currents mm-hmm. existed on the left and they existed on the on the right um, to, to varying degrees. So I just know I don't know how new that that really is. It's just it took one profound crisis to, you know, in the in its immediate wake that made it something that was, you know, a perversion to say out loud, but, but, you know, it existed before and exists now. So, but you know, one of Charlotte the was a blip
3: in that I, sense. I, I think you're right and we there was a there there was an expression of it even on the left in the immediate aftermath of 9/11 that the kind of we deserve this for how we are that was really astonishingly awful but one of the things that I think has changed a lot in the 20 years since has actually been on our side of the aisle on the conservative side and you know someone whenever anyone asks me what I think a conservative is I the, the definition I kind of loosely give is that you know conservatives believes that believe that human nature is human nature human beings are kind of fundamentally flawed we're sort of depraved people. And so anything that modern civilization can do to to help us guide that nature is kind of a miracle and should be protected, should be preserved, should be celebrated. Um, And I think it's that part of conservatism, actually, that we have lost in the last 20 years. There are fewer and fewer people who will who will stand up and say, uh, you know, this is, we're deeply flawed people, but we got to make the best of it and here are the institutions and the means of doing it, whether it's the family or their institutions in society, education, whatnot. Instead, we have a kind of, and it's not just Trump. Trump is simply the the most uh, obvious exemplar of this trend but the trend is one of anger hostility paranoia um fear and that's not really what the base of conservatism has has been um in the past 20 and before 9-11 but these past 20 years i've really sensed more unfortunately a lot more of that on our side of the aisle too
0: well i mean the question that arises from the rise of social media and the kind of um massification of opinion Because opinion has always been largely expressed in the country uh, in one way, which is elections. That's what elections are, is an expression of the opinion of the people in the broadest sense. But the last 20 years have changed that. There is a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute expression of opinion. uh, And we have to sort through whether that opinion genuinely represents, you know, a, a a large number of people or whether we're somehow once again, in our favorite analogy of Plato's cave, where what we are responding to are, are our shadows and not anything real. Um, but the massification of opinion means that, or has seems to have taught us that, um, uh, the, uh, credulity of people, the ability of people wherever they are to, uh, believe anything that supports their priors, as we say, and to believe anything about their opponents uh, that makes their opponents look bad, and to um, embrace uh, ideas about them, about their opponents, and even about their own own side uh, that are, uh, that were frankly sort of like beyond the bounds of most discourse, uh, because um, the people who... Were responsible for the expression of considered opinion. in The United States uh, lived within, uh, for the most part, or for the overwhelming part, lived within uh, boundaries um, in which they did not go too far off one cliff or too far off the other. Uh, I mean this even in 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 the in the holding of noxious opinions. Uh, let's say, like a belief in you know uh, communism or something like that. Um, uh, communism being of, you know, the greatest evil in some ways that we've ever known. But of course, the people who expressed support for communist opinion or something like that, uh, they always, they always descended into this, into the purely theoretical, the idea that, you know, what, what, what they want or what they think is good hasn't ever really been tried. And so, uh but now we have a different we we live in a different world we have you know there is this question like tens of millions of people think that the election of 2020 was stolen now maybe in 1968 had there been a similar existence of social media and somebody had said the election was stolen and you then asked people in the wake of that election had the election been stolen. Tens of millions of people would have said that election was stolen, too. It's just that those those opinions played no role in our lives, and they now play a very large role in our lives, and they are incredibly easily manipulated. I mean, they're, they're far more easily manipulated than we realized. Not just the Trump conspiracy theory nonsense that... Even as it is discredited, even as you know, uh, Linwood and uh, Sidney Powell and others make fools of themselves in courtrooms and are going to lose multi-billion-dollar defamation suits and things like that. What they said, what they laid out, what they claimed—that uh, doesn't seem to have shaken the body of opinion that that decided to go along with them and on the right it's the same thing that you know the 1619 on the left excuse me the 1619 project serious historians who know anything about anything know that it's all garbage and it doesn't matter because it's more protected than than wood and powell and the trump can spin you know my pillow guy and all that because the people who have been promulgating it are part of the liberal elite and so separating themselves, se- people separate, and they are, and they are purveying fashionable opinions that dovetail with, with current fashion. Um, but, uh, but, you know, even there, so it's garbage. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's garbage. It doesn't matter that it's not true. It doesn't matter that it's proved that it's not true. And I, think- I this is a crisis because we, we don't have any antibodies to protect against this. We didn't know be, we
1: didn't. There, 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 used to be a kind of inclination to dismiss fringe opinion um, and say, "Well, no one, no one's going to believe those crazies," or, or even take something like um, you know Twitter and uh, with the 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 opinions that trend for a day on Twitter and the extreme uh, political takes on Twitter. Uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't too long ago that I would say, well, that's just Twitter and no one's on Twitter. That represents a tiny uh, fragment, tiny percentage of, of the country. But I, I, I don't think we can really do that so easily anymore. I think we have seen on both sides that fringe minorities wield outsized power uh, in the US. It, it's largely, I think, a result of social media, but not exclusively a result of social media um i think i think it's it's just it's because we are as as democratic and open as we are um everyone getting a say means that everyone can sort of be um emotionally or um sort of morally blackmailed into going along with some extreme opinion lest they be thought of as uh the enemy um and and this is why we see extreme you know in in the wake of uh the the attacks on the on, the, on the, the January 6th, uh, Capitol Hill, um, overwhelmingly, Republicans across the board were saying this is disgusting, this is horrible, this is. and bit by bit, it's become so much more acceptable to accept and even endorse parts of things that went on that day among people who didn't do so in its immediate wake, because these things snowball out there in social media, in the culture generally, and and again and again, these out this, these these
3: fringe minorities take on outsized power. Well, and I, so, uh, just just to add real quick to that, that it, it's not even um, that is true. And in addition to that, now, and I think this is to what John was saying earlier about the impact and the. Transformation social media has wrought. You don't even have to be a person who gets deep into the weeds on any individual conspiracy theory. But I think what has been cultivated in the last decade in particular is just a general skepticism and suspicion when anything like that is put before you. So you don't even have to believe it, but you think in a way that I think Americans did not about, certainly about their government, except for fringe elements, they now go, well, maybe that's true. And then add to that, weird mixed messaging and the noble lies that have been coming forth out of the pandemic. And people are, I think, rightfully much more suspicious in general of their institutions as well as not trusting them. And that is quite corrosive over time.
2: So I don't, I don't want to be dismissive of any of this because these are all very serious problems and particularly the normalization of the events of uh, January 6th. But it strikes me more as a tribal signifier among the right than it does uh, an expression of fealty to a deeply held belief, and it's the sort of thing that I think probably people express in, in to pollsters at least as an expression of tribal fealty, in much the same way that you had just about every Democrat believing, you know, it's two thirds of Democrats believing that Russia somehow manipulated elect- election results in 2017. There was no evidence of that. No one was. No one in, in the elite sphere was even saying that. Um, but it was something that you had to adopt and and, and express as a, an expression of your zealotry in service to the cause that you were that you were devoted to. And I'm I don't know whether this you know this current political environment, intellectual environment, is really all that dissimilar from the one that prevailed in 1940, 1939. Um, elite dissatisfaction with the way in which the United States had organized itself, contrasting very disfavorably to the models represented by the Soviet Union to the models represented by Nazi Germany, depending on what side of the aisle you want, on, it was not uncontroversial, it was, or rather it was not controversial for you to say, well, we need to emulate the, the best aspects of Nazi society, of, of Soviet society, because we're high bound, we're beholden to a, a model of social organization that is woefully inefficient. Uh, and that's you know, the sort of thing that I think you can see expressed in, in elite opinion today and the people who adhere to elite opinion.
1: No, I, I agree with you entirely that that it's largely tribal. I just don't know that that makes it less of a threat um, because tribal affiliation runs very deep uh, and there's, there's none of the sort of cooling element uh, that there is, that there can be in political discourse and um, political thought. Um, Tribe runs, you know, uh, right to the heart, right to the bone, especially in an age when people have fewer associations outside themselves than they used to uh so now if your political tribe is your identity that 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 means more to you than it ever did
0: and and the the whole idea of a political tribe is a bit of an oxymoron because tribes as understood are very visceral personal connections to very real tangible things that are right in front of you you live within your tribe you you your tents are you know you, ha- you you place your tents in proximity to your tribe you set up a perimeter to protect you from other tribes you live a life in which you are interwoven into a real practical thing and political tribes are abstractions you're connecting to people on the basis of shared concepts or shared prejudices or shared whatever uh, that aren't real and tangible and the tribe is uh, the passions of a tribe are controlled to some extent by the need to live uh, you know communitarianly and there don't seem to be any controls on the passions of a political tribe when it comes to the ideas that they support they just seem Inexhaustibly able to swallow ever more uh, extreme and therefore, you know, like alluring, attractive, exciting, you know, things that make your heart pound, ideas. Uh, then, then they are tempered by the need to live within an
1: organization like a tribe. I mean, what what really holds tribes together is wariness of those not in the tribe. Um, and that is that is a that is a sort of dangerous motivation that we see playing out very clearly in in the political tribes today. So in, in that sense uh, political tribes in America have managed to mimic the actual dynamics of of, of you know living living tribally
3: well and, and again that's where the the public facing social media, Online twenty four seven cable news world plays into that extremely bad instinct because you usually tribes when they self police you know when they when they root out heretics in their midst do it in private or could do it in private and political parties used to do the same somewhat in private now you have you know. AOC and the squad calling out senior senators on Twitter constantly and picking fights, you know, they're picking fights with each other publicly now in a way that I think fuels for individual voters that same sense of us versus them, the other the othering as as the sociologists right. sociologists like to call it of of your enemies.
0: I mean, tribes are not peaceable within themselves ever, obviously, right? There's always somebody wants to contest for for a dominant position in a tribe if you want to talk about why AOC is having a fight with Joe Manchin that's a that's an intra tribal rivalry to see who who can become dominant and who can decide where where things are and where things go i all of these trends everything we're talking about nothing is new in one sense what is new is the capacity to communicate uh, in 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 real time, instantaneously to people and the consequences therefrom, which are much broader than I think we we ever th- could have imagined though when you look back and you think about what instantaneity can do, obviously, you know we were naive or something not to understand. I mean not that there's anything to be done about it. this all happened as is always true of technological revolutions, it happens while you're not looking or the, or the integration of the new thing that is changing the way people live sort of comes upon you all of a sudden. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, you know, my favorite example of this is something that Newt Gingrich said, which is he said, you'll, you'll know, you know the world has changed uh, when people put money into a bank machine and then don't wait for a receipt. Like 40 years earlier, before the creation of the ATM, if you had taken cash and put it into a machine, your presumption would have been that there was a person inside the other machine and you would have taken your cash and with no example of anybody, you know, taken one of the 20s and put it in his pocket. How did you know that it was going to get registered? So then you have a machine. It goes in a machine. You get a receipt. The receipt says you put in $80. It doesn't say you put in $60. And therefore, if something happens, you can go to a human being and say I put in $80 not and you credited me with 60 and then they'll have to fix it. And now you just assume that the that these machines are more honest than people, that they are more that they are more rational, that they do things in an objective fashion and that this is all happening in a recorded way and that you're safer. So you don't have to balance your checkbook anymore because it's done for you. You don't have to check on things because these are all happening to you in this way. And that change, alteration in human consciousness has a real reflection here in in a weird way. Here I am on Facebook. Here's an article that says something about Joe Biden, whom I don't like, and it must be true. You couldn't have gotten that article. Uh, before. You know, it would have taken your grandmother, clipping it from the Canton Repository and putting it in the mail to you, and then you get it five days later and it's in your hand. And then you take that article and you read it and then you send it to somebody else. And in three months, seven people will have read this article alleging something or other. And now that Canton Repository article could be read by two million people in five minutes. It's consciousness altering. And as I say, there's no solution to it but it does change things and and um, and it is, I think, the largest, ch- it is the thing that has had the most impact on this weird somber quality that we have as we look at the country now that it couldn't have had, Trump couldn't have existed without it, uh, the, the reaction to Trump couldn't have existed without it black lives matter couldn't have happened without it uh you know the the george floyd protests couldn't all of this is all the result of this technological alteration in the way we process information and then act on it and it's a it's it's and you know the it's going to be the job of the 21st century to figure out how to reconcile this with how we go about life without living in this constant state of hysteria. Um, Let me talk to you now about uh, Raycon, our first sponsor. Um, You know, uh, so much going on in the world, whether you wanted to hear the names being read on 9-11 or whether you need to just relax by listening to some beautiful music. Uh, You know, you you can't control the vibes out there, but you can always control the vibes in your head with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ear, whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work out, or work. Raycons are the go-to for on-the-go audio, and the new everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. With an improved rubber oil look and feel and optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these are impressive before you even start listening. You get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. Pure mode for podcast listening like this, blues, instrumental. Balance mode also for podcast listening, but rock and heavy rock metal. And bass mode, hip-hop, EDM, reggae, etc. There's also an all-new awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings. Instead, Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Raycon started half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. Right now, commentary listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com/commentary. That's com ncom commentary to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com/commentary. Um, George W. Bush gave a speech uh, on Saturday um, at, um, I'm sorry, at the Flight 93 Memorial. Shanksville, so, Pennsylvania. In Shanksville. Yeah. Um, and here's what he said. He said, as our nation, our adjustments have been profound. Many stru- Americans struggle to understand why an enemy would hate us with such zeal. Security measures incorporated into our lives are both sources of comfort and reminders of our vulnerability. And we have seen growing evidence that dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home, but in their disdain for pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit, and it is our continuing duty to confront them. Uh, so this is occasion a lot of talk that uh, Bush is talking about January 6th, maybe, or I'm not sure. Uh, he obviously doesn't mention January 6th. The only January 6th hint is A, violent extremists, and B, defiling national symbols. Um, do we think... Does it matter that the former leader of the Republican Party is willing to call out violent extremists who are clearly sort of, you know, if you are going to line these things up in this broadest possible way, people, you know, on the right side of the ledger?
2: Um, No. Yes, he was talking about January 6th. I mean, he absolutely was talking about January 6th. But... No, I don't think it, it matters to the to the audience that people want it to matter to. Um, but you know, to, to the point of our first break, the size of that audience matters and uh, the relevance of that audience matters. And we risk over inflating it because it is so in our face, um, as you say, the vanguard. Um, but a vanguard is by definition, a very narrow, small, overly zealous, committed band um, that may be indicative of of a future that is broader based, but isn't today. I, I, I
1: admire, and this is a, I've tr- puzzled over this since, since I heard, heard the speech. I, I admire George Bush a great deal. Um, I, I don't see any good coming of invoking um, the January 6th uh, on the, on the, on the anniversary of September 11th. I don't, I don't. I don't actually think it's true that the people involved are children of the same foul spirit. Uh, they're they're children of a different foul spirit. They don't. They don't. They're not. They don't actually want the same things. I mean, I know. I know. Bush said that there's there's little ideological overlap, but it's 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 more than that. It, I don't think one belongs in the other at all, and I it and it's it's wrong in the same way that it's wrong when the the left uses nine 11 to sort of make points, um, retroactively about what, what they're, you know, what's on their mind. Um, there was like there was this writer from teen Vogue who said something on Twitter over the weekend, along the, along the lines of, you know, America was hit on nine 11 because, uh, because of institutional racism and and misogyny, you know, as if, as if, as if Al Qaeda were, you know, uh, uh, Teen
3: Vogue readers. There's also, I mean, Teen Vogue was even, you know, woke. (laughs) The the other reason he, I puzzled over it as well, Abe, and I think the other reason he might have done a little signaling in the speech is that there's there's a bunch of people coming to Washington on September 18th, that's this Saturday, for another rally, and they're going to be putting up, fencing again around the Capitol, possibly, and there is concern about violence breaking out there, just like there is now. Dog barking, breaking out of my home. Sorry for. <laughs>
0: um. Okay. So, I- I'm trying to think of to say that you know extremism has the same root is um yeah I think is a is a is a bad elision. One way that you can defend it is to say that well here here's the difference. So the difference is. We assumed, and it's why maybe Bush isn't, wasn't the right person to say this. We we assumed that the Al Qaeda, the nineteen hijackers who died on nine eleven in the suicide bombings, uh that they were not simply a vanguard. The, the, they were not outliers. That they were forward. They were the most uh, forward soldiers in a lar- in a serious sustained. Larger ideological struggle with the United States that was getting physical, that was literally becoming a physical reality. They were blowing up buildings in the United States, and then over the course of the next ten years, there was the attack on the Madrid train station. There was there was uh, there was the British uh, you know subway attack on seven seven zero seven. Multiple efforts to attack that were thwarted and, and stymied. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, you could say that it militarized when ISIS uh, when, when ISIS was, became a, a, a potent force and that we went into Iraq on the grounds that somehow the, there were the, this was all coterminous. That, that was the idea was that they were they were the, the heads of a many many headed, uh, multi-pronged and very large movement. Against America and the West, and I just don't think you can say that about january sixth I mean the number of people in the crowd who might have been motivated by the kinds of ideological hatreds and rages that uh, you know that 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 Bush is talking about, probably numbered in the dozens at most. this was clearly. Uh, You know, these were people who honestly believed that the election was being stolen and were marching on the Capitol to try to affect their will. It's a terrible thing. It was a monstrous thing that happened. Um, But their purpose wasn't to destroy the United States. It was to save the United States in in their own deluded uh, fantasy mind uh whereas there i'm sure there as, as with all such crowds there were a couple dozen people who were there for the destruction and wanted to you know see things burn and all of that and that that's so that so i, I the, the analogy is, is 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 terrible where i think it is fair to make this analogy is that there is some kind of an anti-democratic movement in the United States, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, against the uh, very ideas and ideals that gave birth to the con- to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that is a that is a real thing. It may be really tiny. You know, I mean, one of the great ironies of what happened after after September 11th was the the search for the moderate Muslim. You remember there was all this, who's, where is the moderate Muslim? And uh, there were various people. Uh, and there was a writer named Stephen Schwartz. I I, I, I haven't seen, uh, you know, anything from him in, in, in many years. But Stephen Schwartz is a very ideologically interesting person. And he wanted to go look for the moderate Muslim. And he ended up converting to Sufism, which is um, a kind of um, mystical uh, I don't know what you would call it—humanistic Islam, centering uh, in some sense on the on the on the poetry of the of the poet Rumi. And um, the thing about the Sufis is that they represent one or two percent of, if that, of the population of the entire Muslim Ummah. Like that, they they they. It's great to embrace, you know, a loving poetic peaceful beautiful you know uh, image of of the quran but that is not but that was like embracing a you know that was that was becoming part of a a set a tiny 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 sliver of islam not the not the real thing and similarly i don't know we i I just find that we we're, we're hopeful yeah that either the people that we know who are embracing this anti-democratic thing are are in effect like steven schwartz or or again they are they're a vanguard and that more and more people are going to say yeah this country took a wrong term wrong turn in
3: 1689 by not disavowing john locke Okay, but there's, okay, so, but these debates have been going on. This is where I get to put my historian hat on for a minute. These debates have always gone on. And in fact, some of the most uh, rich and interesting uh, time that it was was when the states were developing their own constitutions during, you know, post Articles of Confederation, when they were all kind of trying to figure out what kind of government they wanted to embrace for themselves as states. I would highly recommend Gordon S. Wood's excellent new book, it's a collection of essays. Um, I'm going to let me make sure I get I think it's called Power and Liberty. I just finished it. It's very inspiring because what it shows you is that we've always been arguing about this. And those arguments are important. And to the earlier part of the show, they're very difficult to have in the current intellectual and social environment because of the way that we have debate in general. But there are uh, there were always among our founding fathers, people very concerned about Uh, the masses having too much say in democracy and whether this is how we got a, you know, Senate and a house. This is how we got all, you know, a single unitary executive, but those discussions and debates are just as rich and important to be having now. And instead what we have are, you know, people not being elected governor of Georgia yet declaring she in fact still is the governor of Georgia claims that anytime someone wants to require ID for voting, it's Jim Crow. We, we, we've lost our ability to have these debates and we need to restore that and continue to have them.
2: And that's probably why I'm far more sympathetic to George W. Bush's speech than I think any of you are. Um, <clears throat> it should, there is a distinction to be made between uh, a person who sets out with violent designs and the reptilian brain that takes over when you're amid a mob. Um, that in a crowd. That is a distinction that is uh, difficult to make because people find it to be morally reprehensive, but it is a distinction with a difference, uh, as anybody who's read their Elias Kennedy knows. Nevertheless, what George W. Bush set out to do in the wake of 9-11, and anybody who forgets should go ahead and reread or rewatch the first address to a joint session of Congress after the attacks, where he made very little distinction between the Taliban and their conception of society and how it should be you know, organized, and the Al-Qaeda terrorists and the people aligned with Al-Qaeda terrorists who were the vanguard of this violence, is that that ideological proclivity uh, unchecked, has the capacity to uh, to do great damage and become an organizing philosophy, even among those who are not predisposed to be sympathetic towards it, uh, because it just becomes the social milieu in which you you uh, you live. And in that sense, the anti-democratic forces, the illiberal forces that were unleashed upon us on January sixth and earlier on the left. Um, for those who organized in the streets in defense of a theory of social organization that would do away with American liberalism and the protections afforded in the Constitution in favor of a more uh, uh, social justice recapitulation of America that doesn't really observe your individual liberties and for, believes you to be just a member of a tribe into which you were born, and that's your indelible identity. Those are the two competing theories of organization that are at work trying to undermine the United States as it was conceived by the founders. and. To the extent there are violent elements uh small as they may be working towards that they represent a far greater threat because their ideology um left unchecked left unchallenged uh has has the capacity to do what he's i think george w bush warned of in 2001 which is create an alternative theory of social organization that is entirely antithetical to the classical western liberal standards that we observe
1: look we yeah i just have a question here When we're talking about the Americans who are anti-democratic, we are talking about people who say that their anger comes from the fact that the, that they are they do believe in democracy, but that democracy was hijacked, that it was that that the election was fraudulent. Um, so therefore they're they're looking to right, things um, do we not believe them I mean uh, uh, can we strictly well, say, no, here, uh, can we strictly say that they're anti-democratic if if they think they if they believe that that the election was fixed well right and, see,
2: in their minds so briefly in their minds they are they were defenders of the Constitution so yeah in that sense their their motives were pure in the minds of the 19 hijackers who flew themselves into buildings, they were seeking to restore a moral order that was lost,
0: right? Well, I, I mean, I, I said this to begin with that there that there's a, that there's a distinction. Uh, they may think that they were going for the restoration of democracy. Um, you know, people thinkers like Adrian Vermule are not interested in democracy anymore. They don't believe in democracy. They think democracy uh, leads to um, uh, soul-destroying libertinism of every category and that we need a different kind of religiously-driven authoritarianism. And I bring this up only to say that while this this theory is very... Um, uh, on the one hand, it's, it's very extreme and very anti-American and very much not in the American spirit. As Christine says... In some ways, it is the fundamental argument of modernity and anti-modernity. The fundamental argument is that uh, modernity placed the individual at the center of, I I was going to say existence, but that's not right, but they placed the individual at the center and pre-modernity did not have much use for the individual the individual was not a, was not what was interesting. Larger scale social organization and the salvation of souls and the condition of your soul in relation to God is what mattered, and so this fight is very, as we say, is a very very long standing, and we somehow got a pause in it for a couple of centuries in in some fundamental sense. Uh, simply because the the Enlightenment model was working, it was working. Like it, it, you kind of couldn't argue with success. It was like it wasn't. You know, people got richer and societies got freer, and people seemed happier, and they were. You know, and the prosperity was uh, shared, and all of that. And so, it was a little hard to make the argument that it was bad. And things have changed over the last 20 years so that it's a little harder, not that prosperity isn't growing, not that we don't have economic growth and all of that. And the story of the last 30 years is the more people have been saved from poverty on the planet Earth than at any time in human human history and all of that. But here in the United States, we have a suicide epidemic and we have opioid epidemic. We have have a, a, a sense of a loss of any kind of national purpose and all of that. And so when people come on and say, oh, yeah, things are better, really? You really think things are better than they were when people weren't killing themselves at this rate? And it's a little harder for that argument to be made. And that gives space and oxygen to this thing that means that it's not just a fringe opinion. Because anybody who tries to happy talk the problems in the United States hits runs into a a, a buzzsaw of reality. There things have gone wrong here in a way that we did not anticipate that they would go wrong in a world in which we didn't have the Soviet Union as a rival or a world in which we weren't just the dominant unipower. Um, you know, and and uh speaking of prosperity and all of that, let's go and talk about our friend David Bonson at the Bonson group. David is a believer in prosperity and a believer in the idea that, lar- you know, large-scale prosperity is the only way to lift people out of poverty and the only way to alter the circumstances of uh, the lives of people who can't, you know, who can't scratch two nickels together. Uh, and in his two great newsletters, the thedctoday.com and dividendcafe.com, he goes into great depth on a daily and weekly basis. DCToday.com being weekly, since today gives you that sense, and DividendCafe.com, excuse me, DC Today Daily and uh, DividendCafe Weekly uh, give you a view both from 30,000 feet and from the actions and behaviors of that day in the markets. Uh, It is uh, thrilling and interesting and always revelatory stuff. Go to DividendCafe.com now and subscribe This is from our friends at the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Um, Christine, again, putting on your um, historian's helmet. um, When you say things like, we need to restore the ability to have debates or we need to get back to a thing like this, does that ever happen? Or is it a fool's errand to hope that somehow once a certain type of civility or whatever you want, want want to call it has been breached that it can ever be, that it can ever be uh, gotten back again.
3: Um, it, it's very difficult and, and it's easy to say, Oh, we should all be more civil and have more you know conscientious debates where we respect each other's opinions. And it's very hard to do in practice. I will say though, in a weird way, the kind of uh, back to the illiberalism point, the rise of illiberalism, particularly on places like college campuses, which used to be a, a a really good area of ferment for these kinds of discussions, out of which grew scholarship that then trickled down into policymaking, perhaps or at least informed some of the the current debates. Um, I think the the excesses of uh, critical race theory, cancel culture, illiberalism in general are forcing the creation of alternatives to those sorts of places. So you do see, look our friend Barry Weiss has a has a substack that that hosts all kinds of debates. Lots of other writers are trying to create those spaces. Some of them are online, some of them in the real world. There are people in these institutions, academic institutions, trying to do the same thing as well. It's very small at this point, and it's up against the sort of gargantuan thing that is social media as well as a very politicized academia. But I'm not entirely pessimistic that it's impossible, and particularly when you talk to younger generations who've been indoctrinated, you know, K through 12, who kind of see how social media operates and don't really necessarily want to participate in a world like that. I I think there's some hope, but it has to be – I I do think we have to be vigilant on our end about upholding the ability to have those disagreements publicly, especially with people on the other side of the aisle who we disagree with. I mean, that's been the power of the 1619 Project folks. Every time they're pressed on matters of fact, they claim, oh, we just want people to be better informed. We're not saying this is history. Yes, they are. The goalposts are constantly shifting on their side. Same with critical race theory. So people pushing back at a kind of At this point populist level when it's parents for schools yeah i think that will make a difference down the line if it remains consistent
0: okay so uh, i graduated from college 39 years ago and i went to uh, the university of chicago reputed to be you know sort of like uh, even then or then you know uh, uncommonly judicious school when it came to the expression of uh, a broad, broader range of opinion than was the case at other universities. So it's now, you know, two generations later. And um, what I, th- even at the time, people on the right, serious people were saying, my graduate department is getting increasingly hostile to me because I'm interested in X, Y, and Z. Um I have trouble at faculty meetings because people, if I say certain types of things, people come down on my head and all of that. Uh, a lot of the population of the think tanks of places like AEI and others happened in part because academics said, like, I can't live like this anymore. It's just too horrible. And they went and they took their distinguished work uh, and, and stopped teaching kids and went and did research and uh, things like that at, uh, at think tanks. So it's now two generations later, there's been increasing depopulation of non-liberal, non-leftist, non-radical thought on on college campuses. And uh, clearly, uh, there were going to be terrible consequences from that. Um, And that, that, uh, that a whole range of ideas in the United States were somehow ruled out of polite uh, contemporary discourse as the march through the institutions expressed itself through the ideological uniformity of, of, of all of these departments, of all liberal arts departments. And now increasingly there's this move on the sciences, uh, that the sciences should also reflect these ideas. Um, again, is this reversible? I mean, I, it, the consequences of it seem very plain. Uh, in terms of the radicalization, or kind of the opening of the Overton window to radical leftist ideas that uh, were once not quite so easily accessed, or not once so, quite so easily believed in, and uh, can that genie go? By? I mean, I hate to sound like I'm in this like incredibly pessimistic mode here, um, but uh, you know, can that genie go back in the bottle? Can there can there be a, a revival of uh, or or, or or is this, you know, are we are we just going down a road that you know was mapped for us when after the 60s, when when 60s radicals simply decided they were going to make their home in the, in the universities and do what they could to uh, work their activism
1: through these disciplines? I, I think, you know when you bring up the 60s, this is a point I've made before, and I, I believe and I, I fervently hope. I think the kids, who grew up with uh, parents and teachers and celebrities telling them, moralizing parents, teachers, and celebrities, telling them that they are bad because they are inherently racist or that they are, that their horizons are limited because they live in a country that is inherently racist. Uh, I think those kids will, I think we're going to see something like a right wing sixties because because, it is the, it is the exact same dynamic whereby you're being lectured at uh, by a, a, an older generation um, and you don't actually subscribe ultimately to their views and you don't you want to sort of just live your life that's 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 what it has in common with with you know the the sort of 60s generation these are people saying I'm I, I don't want to be um, Sort of like you know, limited by your moralizing, and that is that is what is happening on the left, so I could certainly see um, a big reversal ideologically coming down the pike. I think what's uh, harder to reverse is the incivility actually um i don't I, my, my fear is that that stays even as the the ideology swings the other way, right. Guys, let me ask
0: you why do just four companies control 80% of the U.S. meat industry? Because big food crushes the little guy. You can help change that with moinkbox.com. Why are 97% of the chicken served in the U.S. dipped in chlorine simple? Because big food doesn't have the same quality standards as the family farm. That's why you need moinkbox.com. The best bacon, the best steak, the best chicken, and the best salmon you'll ever eat won't come from the grocery store. You'll only find it on the family farm and caught by independent Alaskan fishermen. That's why you need moinkbox.com. Stop arguing with your friends about politics and do something. Join the moink movement and save the family farm. Restaurant quality steaks can't be bought at the store. That's why you need moinkbox.com, founded by an eighth generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in moink. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of bacon for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you want each month and cancel any time their animals are raised outdoors. Their fish swim wild in the ocean and moink is, meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Yes, join that moink movement today. Go to moinkbox, moinkbo slash commentary right now. And listeners to the show get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash
3: commentary. Can I can I add one thing to what Abe said? Because one one big change, and you're absolutely right that this could, could uh lead to a backlash among uh, younger kids, is that the culture war used to be something that had an all-volunteer army. And the culture war now has a draft. You are drafted into it whether you want to go or not. You have to participate. And for younger kids in particular, they don't like that.
2: Right. That is well, The, the, the countercultural backlash is something, generational backlash can, is the most consistent force in the universe. You can always right. count on it. And um, yeah, the, the backlash against what we're seeing today would be anti-censorious, would be libertine, yep. uh, would be uh, amoral. In, in a certain sense, but an anti-moralistic, more, more uh, likely. It won't be civil, for sure, because it requires uh, levity and jocularity and making fun of these people. But one thing you can count on when it comes to processing the world through ideological frameworks is that the people who subscribe to those ideas will find that the ideological framework is wholly insufficient to describe the world around them. That was the problem with Marxism. You can't filter the universe through class conflict because it's an insufficient theory to understand the world. We have a uh, it's just case in point. We have a babysitter who's in college right now, and she's talking to me about the courses she's taking. One of them is a course on. Um, she's doing a lot of medical research, so she's taking a course on pharmaceuticals. But the pharmaceutical course is filtered to the, the framework of gender politics. It is pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry via feminist theory. Um, which you will find wholly insufficient to the world of drug manufacturing. That won't help you at all professionally. And when I was learning, uh, when I was studying graduate work, um, international relations, the theory of feminism as a school of international relations was taught to me, and it was ridiculous because it had absolutely no bearing on the conduct of geopolitics. Uh, it's the sort of thing that eventually you'll discover is, uh, save for the truly indoctrinated is just, you know, a talisman is not actually anything that will help you in the real world.
0: Yeah, but by the time that happens, the damage is done, and you're already out in the real world, and you'll have realized that you were sold a bill of goods. And I think a lot of people have had that experience. But you know, like boosterism in general, like, uh, like the world in which people came to a, a settlement they had bought into, in the 19th century, where it said, come to us, we have our opera house, we have our feed store, we have everything. And they got off the train and there was nothing there. And then the idea was you have to join the conspiracy of lies here uh, because otherwise your property is worth nothing. You also need to write back to people in the East and say, come West and you'll <laughs> you'll be able to be entertained at our opera house. Uh, people who get college degrees and you know, spent a lot of money on them. Have no incentive anymore to say what I just did wasted an enormous amount of my time. Quite the opposite. And so that's an interesting uh, entropic effect, right? It sort of it keeps the degradation going. And I will, will, will see, we'll see what happens. Um. So you know, have you ever browsed in incognito mode? It's probably not as incognito as you think, and why would it be incognito mode like the Chrome browser itself is a Google product? Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the company in California where it's secretly collecting, accused of secretly collecting user data. And Google's defense is that the word incognito does not mean invisible. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN. Because it turns out, even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked. Data workers still get to buy and sell your data. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address. shared By many other ExpressVPN customers, that makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's exprssvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. So uh, this unparalleled exercise in crushing morosity must come to an end. Can anybody, the only thing that I can say of a cheerful nature right now is I took my kids to see the new Marvel movie, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And if you were an adult thinking of taking your kids to a movie, this is a movie to see. It's really good. It's a it's a very fun uh, action thriller with some amazingly good fight scenes some very good comedy and a, and a pretty interesting plot like all marvel movies the last 10 minutes you could just throw in the garbage the final fight is very hard to follow and kind of boring and you know it's all kind of you know what you would expect but but for most of it it's um it's really pretty good so with that for abe christina noah i'm john Podhoritz, keep the candle burning